Hello, and welcome to the RPM Podcast. I'm Drew Evans. The Rock Photography Museum, or RPM, is an initiative launched in 2019 with a presentation at the South by Southwest Conference in Austin, Texas. The co-founders are myself, Stephen Walker of Modern Rocks Gallery, and Hugh Brown, former creative director at Rhino Records. RPM is currently just an idea, but the plan is to create the world's first museum devoted specifically to music photography. It will feature rotating exhibits, a research archive, licensing services, and a fine art gallery. You can find out more at rpmarchives.com. The plan for the RPM podcast is to pair up photographers with their subjects, prompting less of an interview and more of just a conversation, almost as though they have run into each other in an airport bar while waiting for a flight, and you're a fly on the wall for the chat that follows. For our first episode, we're pleased to bring you Graham Nash and Alec Byrne. Graham is a legendary singer-songwriter and musician, co-founder of The Hollies and later Crosby, Stills & Nash, and also an accomplished photographer. His latest collection of music, This Path Tonight, came out in 2016, and in early 2020 he was just a few days into a worldwide tour which had to be postponed due to the pandemic. Alec Byrne covered the music scene in London in the late 60s and early 70s, during which time he photographed every major artist of the day, including both The Hollies and Crosby, Stills & Nash. His work, which was stored in his garage out of sight for nearly 40 years, finally re-emerged in 2017 in the book London Rock, The Unseen Archive. While never having met before, Graham and Alec discovered they had much in common, including leaving London behind in their late 20s for the warm embrace of sunny California. You came much earlier than me. I came to California to live uh, in uh, December of 1968. Yeah. Yeah, I I played my last show with the Hollies on December the 8th uh, at the London Palladium. It was a benefit for Save the Children Foundation. And two days later, I I had left England. I had left all my money. I had left all my equipment. I I got on a plane. And on December 10th, I was in Los Angeles with David and Stephen. Wow. When did you first get here? 75. 75. 75. And, and, you know, I was going to blaze a trail in Hollywood. <laughs> You've heard those stories. Oh, yes. And was, you know, it, 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 one of the things that I was, that, that I was uh, no, noticing is, is the lack of access now to stars, you know. Um, your David Bowie shoe, where he just walked in on his own, right? That's it. It was such a simple time, no handlers. Right. It's not that way anymore, is it? It's not. It's no. not. It's, it's very hard, I would imagine, for anyone trying to shoot music now when you have this th- first three numbers only. And I don't know if you know, the uh, somebody sent me a copy of it, uh, t- contract. Oh, if, yeah? If you want to shoot... One of her concerts, you know, the lawyers have got this page document that you sign away your copyright. And oh boy, not for me, not for me either. When did you pick, first pick up a camera? Um, I, I started uh, in Fleet Street. I was working as a dispatch rider, which sounded a very glamorous sort of job. Keystone Press and Fleet Street, round round the corner from the BBC. Uh, it wasn't too far. I, I, the BBC, I remember, was Portland Place. Right. 
so this was Fleet Street, which was down by the Strand. So it wasn't too far. Indeed, right. And um, and I saw the print come up in the dish, as I'm sure you did back in the day. Yeah, my, my father introduced me to photography when I was 10 years old. Yeah, I, I have a book out uh, that I put out many years ago called Eye to Eye, uh, and it's portrait is of my mother that I took when I was 11. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you remember the camera? Oh, yeah, it was an Agva. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. What was your first camera? Pentax, my brother's Pentax ah. is what got me going. And uh, no, no art school, no photography training. It was right. just basically became an obsession. Pick it up and see what happens, right? Yeah. And it was just like living, breathing photography. And uh, how about yourself? How did you? Well, I, it's the same as me. Did your life change that day? Uh, I didn't notice at the time. But looking back, yes, exactly. Looking back, it was the same with me. It was like uh, unbelievable. I mean, the magic of photography. When I was a 10-year-old kid, you know, watching my father put this blank piece of paper into this liquid in a tray and wait, wait, wait. Dad, what? Wait. And then the image came floating in out of nowhere. What, what an unbelievable piece of magic. And I have never forgotten it. Was it the same with you? Absolutely. I mean, that was a turning point. And uh, I, I, I can kind of still got a vague memory uh, of those early days. And it wasn't my darkroom. You had your own darkroom, did you? Your dad's? I mean, it was, my, it was my, my, me and my sister's bedroom. <laughs> yeah. it, it wasn't a dark room. I mean, my father would take the blanket off my bed and put it up against the window to block the light out. No, it wasn't a dark room. I mean, we lived in a, a two-up, two-down house in, in Salford in, near Manchester. We were very poor. Was your family a... Oh, God. Well, I, you're, talking, you're looking at a South London boy from a council house. And uh, and to me, uh, my my first camera was uh, uh, Yushika Mat, mm. which was put on higher purchase, forty pounds. I bet you're still paying it off. <laughs> the weekly, the weekly payments. I know um, that was a big. Um, I, my I was getting five guineas a week uh, as a match rider. Forty pounds was like a huge amount. My mother had to co-sign the the purchase agreement. So London around then was 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 incredible because, you know, basically the Hollies were just five kids from the north of England that had escaped doing what their grandfather did and what their father did and their uncles did. You know, go into the mill or go down the mine. You know, um, and. For some reason, um, my parents let me escape that kind of gold watch where you, you're 75 and you get fired and you're given a gold watch and they'll get somebody cheaper and stronger, you know, in your job. But my mother and father never let me fall for that. Did, did your mother and father encourage you? Very supportive, uh, especially when it came time to, uh, to branch out. I mean, I became freelance at 17. Really? So you didn't really have a real job? No. No, I mean, it was just like I got so lucky connecting with uh, NME. And I don't know if you remember, you had a lot of experience, I'm sure, with the music papers. Yes. Good or bad with NME? Yeah, it was good or bad, you know, and, and disc and music echo, you know. Record mirror, all of those. Unbelievable. But the feeling of 
I, re- I remember this, the summer. I mean, you know, in England, if you blink, you miss summer, you know, but the, my memory of London at those times was always pretty sunny. You know, it was, it was, it was joyful. It was, there was music everywhere. There was culture everywhere. There were fashions and colors and styles everywhere. It was all brand new, you know. By the way, did you ever go to Anello and David and get some Beetle boots? <laughs> no, no, that's above my pay grade. Oh, I do remember hitting the, uh, the hitting the clubs. Yes, which was which was your favorite one? Oh, I mean, the Marquee was, you know, uh, a bit of a time. days, yeah, yeah. But you remember like the Flamingo, uh, and then later on it was the Speakeasy, the Revolution, the very first one in was it kind of uh, the Two Eyes Coffee Bar? Was that it? Where Tommy Steele was discovered? God, I don't remember that. Wow, yeah, it was bef- before the Marquee, before any of that stuff. Oh, really. well. We had one of them incredible uh, Italian coffee-making machines that looked like a piece of, you know, architecture. What was what was going on in London? What made it so? Um, I've thought about this, and and I, I think a lot of it was, you know, coming out of World War Two. After World War Two, there was nothing for fifteen-year-old kids to do. If you had a ball, you could kick it around, or a, a tin can, you could kick it around. You could look for firewood. There wasn't a lot for you to do. Then Skiffle came, and then Saturday Club with Brian Matthews, and then the uh, you know Radio Luxembourg bringing the American rock and roll in, in, in into Manchester if the weather you know uh, was favourable. Uh, though all those things after World War Two, trying to find out something to do getting turned on to skiffle and it was cheap. If you had a, one acoustic guitar and, a, a you know, a washboard, you could make music. I think that feeling of, of not having to do what your dad did, of wanting to leave home, of wanting to, to explore the rest of the world, I think that kind of energy in a lot of 15, 14, 15-year-old kids, and all of a sudden it burst out and that's what happened. But how old are you now? I am seventy-two. I was born in forty-nine, so I missed a lot of a lot of that. But I, bomb sites in London were indeed, and the same in Manchester too. Yeah, we played. We played. That was our playground, you know. But just uh, just the electric buzz that was going on. I mean, I just thought it was the epicenter of the music world at that at that time. Over a dozen singles released every week. I can still remember, like, you know, the first play of a certain who or kinks or whatever, animals, when you think, wow, that's amazing. And the buzz. Yeah, it's uh, astonishing. And when you think of, you know, Mickey Most, who was recording Donovan, you know, and then Donovan wrapped his session up an hour early. And and so Mickey Most had had the animals say, uh, what is that song you do, House of the Rising Sun? Why don't you do that? And they they did it a couple of times. It was the cheapest money-making hit in the world. I mean, it took them like 10 minutes to do it. They played it twice and chose one. Astonishing. Now, if I said, if I mentioned to you Lime Grove Studios, Sure. Does that that ring a bell? Absolutely. We did a lot of shows from there. You know, somebody sent me recently 60 tracks that the Hollies did on on the BBC. 
Now, you well know the BBC. It wasn't like, uh, well, we, we screwed up that beginning. Can we do it again? Oh, no, this is live right now. Do it right now. And I'm telling you, these tapes were great. The engineers at the BBC were, were brilliant at what they were doing. Can you do anything with that material or is it all BBC? They're, they're certainly good enough to release. You know, I'd have to talk to Alan and, and to Tony and Bobby and stuff, but uh, it was kind of shocking. And I remembered what made us so popular. I mean, the Hollies really were, were just, a, a you know, a rock and roll band, you know, trying to please their audience and and and, and, and get them to, to shake their ass and, and move and enjoy things, you know. What a, what a life. Wow. And then the United States. Because once you, once you, kind of conquered Manchester and you went down to London and you had success in London, where go? Where do you go? Yeah, yeah. New York or Los Angeles, right? You're one of the first to make that move. I don't remember too many people. Uh, do you remember? You, was Spencer Davis? So? Uh, yes, yeah, Spencer. Um, Herman's Hermits, of course, you know, uh, the animals. And, you know, I wish the Kinks would have pulled off their American tour. You know, they, they for some reason, the Musicians Union stopped that. But I think that the, the Kinks would have been, you know, much, much more appreciated had they toured America and conquered America. Do you remember those, that whoever put together, and, and this is when I do a few talks and panels, uh, it, it fascinates people when I put this picture up of uh, Engelbert Humberdink with sure. Hendrix. Yeah, I saw that image. That's insane. <laughs> who, who puts together a tour? Can you imagine it's a big date night and you're going to bring your girlfriend to see Engelbert or Jimmy? <laughs> really? I mean, and Jimmy opened for the monkeys, remember? Yes. Yeah, and I think it was with Frozen Peppers or something as well. What was that? I think it would. Didn't Jimmy was a support act for the Mamas and Papas in the States? I'm not sure whether he actually opened for them. There is a famous picture of uh, of Cass and Michelle and, and Jimmy when when Jimmy played, uh, uh, I think, the Hollywood Bowl. So there's a picture of them all together backstage, which made made you think that maybe Jimmy opened for the Mamas and Papas, but I'm not so sure that that was right. And you've done, your band did so many of those, because I can remember getting the Hollies backstage. One of the required things when you started this tour was we need a group shot with everyone, you know, all the other acts. Did you know uh, Harry Goodwin? Oh, God, from the from Top of the Pops, yeah. Yeah. Real yeah. character. And when you think of all the access that, that he had, the people that he photographed, and uh, God knows where. Where is that material now? I think it's in his archive in Manchester. Yeah, I, I, and I have a feeling that, you know, it's like you. When I went through all your the images that you've taken and all the people that you've taken images of, it's kind of remarkable that you had that access. And, you know, it, it, I, I doubt if we'll ever get back to that place anymore, you know. No, no, I don't think we will. I, I had a, a great chat with Henry Dills at um, Coachella at uh, Desert Trip. Did you did you go to that? No, no, never did. It was amazing. They had Getty put on this um, exhibit, photo exhibit, forty thousand square foot space, air conditioned in Coachella, and people were lining up in the desert heat for hours to get in to see photography. Yeah. And to me, that was just like, God. Henry's a, a dear friend, as you know, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
he took a first picture of me in 66 in New York City. Oh, really? He's a great character. He is. And I, I, I suggested to the International uh, Photographers Hall of Fame in St. Louis that, that uh, they, they gave me the honor a couple of years ago. Um, I suggested my friend Joel Bernstein, of course, incredible photographer, you know, and, and I suggested Henry and Henry uh, uh, was inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. Oh, he was? Okay. Yeah. The circle just keeps going, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. I'll, I'll have to look out for that one. You used to, you're a serious, noted collector. Yeah, I ended up with about 3,000 uh, images that that, uh, that later became incredibly important visually. Uh, I sold them all because I saw the digital revolution coming, you know, and I started a company called Nash Editions, which was an atelier for photographers and the first one in the world. Uh, and this switch from analog to digital has been very interesting in my life. I was always waiting for uh, for digital to uh, approach the resolution of film, uh, but now it's it's way past it, of course. What, what do you feel about all this digital work? Well, I, I came up your way, which was like in the dark room and all the magic arts and, and whatever you want to call it. Um, when digital hit in 2000, pretty much for me, uh, year 2000, uh, I, I knew it wasn't going to go away. So I jumped on board and was shooting digital. I did too. I wanted to to raise a couple of million dollars uh, to start Nash Editions, and and that's why. And I sold my collection of photographs at Sotheby's in, I believe, eighty nine or, or nineteen. They set a record, I think. Your collection set a record price or something. Um, it was the largest price paid for a private collection. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and some of the photographers now working with Nash. Did you interact with any of those? Because you had some amazing people. Yes, yes, some of them, you know. Uh, I would have been a fly on the wall with some of those guys. Yeah, I, I have a collection actually at Nash Editions of all the mistakes that happened in printing digital images in the early, in the very first days. And there are some spectacular mistakes, you know. But I, I, the, the digital world is here. I... I I, I I started Nash Editions to 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 be able to help photographers get their work around the world, and uh, it's still going on to this day. You know, twenty five, thirty years later, and it's still in LA based. Yes, it is. It's in Torrance. Okay, I, I can remember reading in trade journals of what you were doing, and at the time, I wasn't. Uh, I was still running uh, a photo agency, so I, to me, that was real high end, high end. Yeah, the, the first printing machine I bought, the Iris printer, was $127,000. Back then? Back then. Wow. Wow. So that's an incredible world. And that, that printer is now in the Smithsonian uh, Museum in, in, in uh, Washington, D.C., of course. Well, how does that compare with what's around then now? Are you familiar with what, what is the, the printing now? Sure. Have the, uh, the corner of the market there? Yeah, what what happened is this. When, when when we started Nash Editions, you know, the Irish people thought, who are these two hippies? It's me, me and my friend Mac Holbert, a great, brilliant man. Uh, who are these two hippies from California using our machine? You know, and we kept telling them, you know, 
you've got to do a couple of things. You've got to, you've got, how, how does this printer do black and white? How does, you know, what do you mean? I spent, I spent a million dollars making the best color machine and you want to do black and white? Well, that was one thing. And I, I actually voided the warranty in the first 20 minutes of having this $127,000 machine because uh, I wanted it to do, and me and Matt wanted it to do. We saw what it could do and we thought, Wow, what would happen if? And so we started talking to uh, to Iris about the the, uh, the the longevity of their ink set, uh, and they started to lose interest in us. And at the same time, you know, other people are starting to make printers now that you can buy for less than five thousand dollars that are just as good. But and but you still have an edge then. But but your Nash edition still. Yes, we get totally supported by Epson. They've been they were very smart. Instead of saying who are these two, you know, California hippies trying to change this business, they went to you know what they've been doing it a while. Let's see what they know. And so we were talking with Epson, and we started to talk about the uh, the longevity of the ink set and and kind of papers and all that kind of stuff. And they listened to us, and they were so helpful. And we've been with them to this day. Tell me, going back, I'd love to know, with me, I never got to see or photograph Sinatra or Elvis. With you, is there any of those great acts that you never got a chance to see? I never saw Sinatra. I, 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 I of course, understand how brilliant his voice was. I never saw Sinatra. I saw Elvis twice. I saw Elvis once at the Forum in, in, in Los Angeles, and then I saw him... It's kind of a funny story. The four of us were going to uh, to to play somewhere, the CSNY, and we're all in this big black limousine, and we're going down Sunset Boulevard to go to the gig, and uh, we stop at a light, and right next to us on the right hand side is Elvis driving a black Cadillac. And so I say, yeah, Elvis, it's Elvis, and he looks, and he just looked at us, and he went. God. Oh my God! Really, really, yeah. really. But there was no other acts. Did you see the Doors? Did you see Jimmy perform? Or I saw Jimmy. You know, Mitch Mitchell and I shared an apartment in London, and so of course I I, I hung out with them and with Jimmy, and saw Jimmy many many times. One of the things that people don't know about Jimmy is that he was an expert at uh, what is that game where you're playing with soldiers. And and uh, hmm. it was a, a soldier's game. You just couldn't beat him at all. He was unbelievable at it. Um, yeah, Jimmy, one of the great guitar players in the world, undoubtedly. So so I, I, my memories of Jimmy is he was such a soft-spoken, quiet, polite, helpful. Completely different than his image. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, but you never worked with the Beatles, or did you ever do anything with them? Um, yes, we did a couple of Beatles shows with them. Um, the one that I remember most, I mean, apart from the stuff at the Cavern that was kind of funky and interesting, was we played in, I think, the King's Hall in Stoke, and uh, we were opening for the Beatles. And after the sound check, John and Paul come up to me and they go, Hey, you want to hear a new song? Of course I want to hear a new Beatles song. Are you kidding? You know, so John and Paul got one guitar. John was playing it and they played um, Misery. I think Helen Shapiro had had a hit with it, I believe. Oh, yeah. 
And, um, you know, to stand there in, in between John and Paul, then singing a new song for us was like an incredible experience for me. Yeah. I mean, there's never going to be a band like that again. No, no, they won't. But that whole period, I don't know. Are we going to be, in 20 years' time, are we going to be talking about K-pop? No. <laughs> that's what I mean about this. We were so lucky, so fortunate to be during that time. Yeah. And, you know, you witnessed it and your camera witnessed it and you've taken many. I particularly like the uh, shot of John Lennon with his face reflected, with his profile reflected in the, in, in the window behind him. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. And, and, and likewise with your uh, collection, I love that Joni Mitchell. I took that, uh, you know, a, a, a dining chair that have a hole in the top so you can pick the chair up, right? Yeah, yeah. I was photographing through there because I, I don't know if you're the same as me. I like I don't like to be visible. I don't. I'd like to be invisible. I don't want people knowing that, that I'm taking that picture. Yeah. Well, people do get very subconscious. I mean, regardless of how often you're photographed, when someone sticks a camera in your face, most people just react or are aware of it. So. And I'm, I, you know, having had my picture taken a million times, I, I know when I'm, you know, I know what's supposed to be my best side. And I try and look like James Dean and be cool and all. I, you never do it. You just, you know. <laughs> no, I, I, another one of your shots that I love is Alan Clark. Uh, you know, I'm working with Alan right now. Oh, you are? Oh, yeah. my God. I... Yeah, we're, we're, we're uh, you know, a, a lot of music is being done remotely nowadays, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, me and Alan are, are working on a couple of songs. He's written a great song about him and I starting out in this incredible world, uh, which I'm about to put my harmony on. Um, and so I'm working with Alan, and he, he's singing really, really well. I think Alan Clark is one of the most underrated pop singers in the world. I did a couple of shoots, and I'm going to send you. Uh, I'll send you an image, and send it on to Alan. I, I don't know if he remembers it way back in the day. We were at some kind of fairground or something. I'll send it on to you, and uh, please do. I appreciate if you sent it on to him just to see. I will. He might like it or what? I don't know. I will. So, do you see anything in today's music world that you want to shoot? Not really. Really, Not really. I to sadly. You've got to come out of retirement. This retirement word, <laughs> you can only retire if you can spell it for me right now. <laughs> no, you got me. You got me. No, I, I, I will. I will. I'm just a lazy shit, you know. That basically it. I'm still waiting for Elvis to come back on the back of an elephant. I'll be waiting with my camera. <laughs>